Welcome to the RSP cast. Film and data, Adam Harstead, Mount Waldman. Always a pleasure for you guys to listen to us and, and you know, for us to be able to have a conversation. And we're going to talk about two subjects today that should be a lot of fun. One is how do we deal with um, situations where our analysis conflicts with um, conventional wisdom? And then maybe looking at the trend of is the NFL going to start running the ball more based on what we're seeing with the way defenses are playing opposing quarterbacks and we're seeing a lot of prominent quarterbacks have a lower quarterback rating and and at least early returns of the potentially maybe a little more than half the league running a little more than they were last year so we'll we'll kind of dive into that a little bit more in in a bit but let's start off with you know how we deal with it when our analysis conflicts with conventional wisdom. So, Adam, I mean, you know, tell us a little bit more about this topic because it's something that you suggested that we that we discuss. Yeah. So, um, Bill James, father of sabermetrics, has this quote, and I, I don't know the exact quote. I'm going to paraphrase, but the basic idea is whenever he does a lot of work and creates a new statistic and and wants to know if that work was worthwhile. Um, he is looking for a statistic that tells him 80% stuff he already knew and 20% stuff he didn't know, already know. And if it's telling him less surprising stuff than that, well then, you know, like it's, it's probably a valid statistic, but who cares? You know, if you invent a new statistic that says, you know, Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson and Justin Herbert are the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Congratulations. But why did you need to invent that new statistic? The old statistics were telling us that just fine. You're not really bringing anything new and interesting to the table. Uh, but on the other end, if more than 20% of the results were surprising, odds are there's a major flaw in your statistic. If you invent a new statistic that's telling us that, you know, like Andy Dalton and Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston and whoever, you know, are the best quarterbacks in the NL. It's not, it's less likely that you've discovered this hidden truth that nobody realizes. And it's more likely that you screwed something up somewhere and everybody else is right and you're wrong. And that's always an interesting tension for me whenever I'm doing any sort of analysis, where if I find something that contradicts conventional wisdom um you know how, how certain am i that i'm right and everybody else is wrong you know it's like the the simpsons meme where principal skinner is like could the children be right you know could i really be out of touch and he says no i am right it is the children who are wrong <laughs> uh, if everybody says something you know like occasionally one dude says that the earth revolves around the sun and everybody else says the sun revolves around the earth. And the one dude was right and everybody else was wrong. But most of the stuff that only one person believes is not that. Most of the stuff that only one person believes is wrong. Think about the guy standing on the street corner that says, you know, like aliens are going to land on earth this Thursday. Um, you know, like that's something that only one person believes and it's wrong. And uh, the, the tricky balance for me is always finding out what's a situation where you know, I'm right and everybody else is wrong, which theoretically should be very hard and very rare. And, and how to tell when it's a situation where like, I just screwed something up and I don't know how, um, 
And I don't know how you deal with that tension, but for me, that's always the big tension whenever I'm doing any kind of analysis that's telling me something unconventional is how much do I trust myself and how much do I trust my process? Yeah, it's and it's annually and has annually been the biggest um, challenge uh, for my career doing draft evaluations of, of players because... I mean, you're going to get players that you think you you get players that you kind of stand alone or on on or are very few people feel the same way about you come to find out and, you know, they'll work. But it's like a, a good example of one that's worked out because I'll give you plenty that haven't, um, you know, like Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson, you know, when evaluating him on film he looked like a potential starter now i didn't think he was gonna you know come into the league and play to the level that he did year one i didn't even think that he would probably get an opportunity to start um right away obviously most people didn't but what was fascinating about him is that you know you watch the film and you have the if you have the list of criteria and the processes that you use that seem to get th identify things r correctly for a bunch of players who have worked out and have performed well, or they exhibit the, or at least they exhibit those criteria points in the league, even if their production isn't good, the things that you're tracking are, are there, you know, and the things that aren't that aren't showing up on their film are also not showing up you know, at the NFL level or what you're projecting seems to be working out good or bad. If that's working out right and your result with a player like Russell Wilson along those same lines is good, and then you see something like Football Outsiders, I don't remember what the name of it was, but they had like a they had like a QB, a quarterback scoring matrix that they Oh yeah, used. the the Lewin projection the Lewin. system. Yes. Yeah. The Lewin projection system. So, because my first my first article of Football Outsiders was basically kind of like a jokingly thumb the nose at the Lewin projection system, because that year it was you know Luck, Griffin, and Wilson, and Wilson scored highest among the three with Lewin with um Luck being the generational prospect that conventional wisdom had with him, Griffin being like the the shiny, bright, like athletic toy who could be the Rob, the the Michael Vick with maybe potentially more, you know, passing acumen. And Wilson, Steve Young was the comp I heard a lot. Yes, yes, and <clears throat> and then and then um, Wilson was like this short afterthought who they gave an asterisk to because he was just you know based on his his dimensions, he wasn't going to be a starter in the league and because he probably wasn't going to be drafted high enough. And so, but he outscored everybody by a pretty decent margin. So for me, it was fascinating to like take him on as someone to write about it first as an unconventional person to, to watch because if their metrics were showing that, you know, and I didn't know much about the Lewin score at the time, but, you know, if that if it was showing that and my film process was like well he's good and they're going to put an asterisk on it well maybe that asterisk needs to be paid attention to as and you know that would be a good example um, um go ahead yeah i was about to say um 
I mean, I could talk about the Lewin system, and I, I, I think it tends to be pretty overfit. But you're right that it was super high on Russell Wilson, and that is a point in its favor. But, I mean, speaking of, like, lots of ways to get the analysis wrong, I think that they kind of made some errors in there, and I don't know yeah. if they've gone back and corrected for them later. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree that that was likely the case. But I thought it was fascinating just from a, you know, I, I've always... I've always remember, I don't remember the quote, but the, to paraphrase the quote that when, when something becomes conventional wisdom, usually that's the time to run away from it. Um, <laughs> so um, I've kind of lived by that to a degree. Now, obviously you can die by that too. And I've had, you know, I've had analysis of players like Trey Sermon is a perfect example of someone who I... I liked more than most people and while, you know, and I think people listen to that because of the fact that, you know, I've had guys like Nick Chubb or Matt Forte or other players ranked highly and kind of stood fairly alone on that hill um, in the, or didn't like a Darren McFadden who was, you know, everyone thought was going to be the next coming of God with, you know, with a carrying a football. Um, and so when you're standalone on that hill, you know, and it doesn't work out, you know, those are things that can be difficult. But I mean, like for me, what I find happens is the biggest challenge is, first of all, is, you, is the pressure to want to conform. There's that. Um, and you start looking for, did I, what did I miss? And you're, I find myself double and triple checking things i find myself watching more than maybe i would normally watch and and try to safeguard myself from overly nitpicking or not nitpicking enough and it's um and so when that's the danger with it is that you can find yourself generating bias with in a in a situation where you would normally see in a more clear-headed way um so that's a there's a point where you gotta kind of have to learn to trust it on a level where you don't look at the gray areas with your criteria where you can you know sometimes you'll be watching something i i look at my criteria and usually i want everything to be answered in a yes or no and have things clearly defined so that i can do that but there's always going to be plays where you could you could kind of score it either way not a lot of them but there's enough of them that could make it make a difference and those are the ones that get more difficult when you start to wonder if you've if you've missed something with this player and when you go back and look and at the end of the day all i try and do is say the the definitions i have the criteria i have is what i have to follow and i have and these are learning lessons. These are lessons that are about to happen for me because if I'm right, um, and it's not with each player, but over the span of time with players, if I'm if I'm correct, then this will reinforce some of that. Hopefully, if I'm incorrect with what I did, then I need to you know I I need to make notes of these things. So the things that I'm the things where I feel like I'm about to waffle. I tend to highlight those criteria points and go, these are things I need to, these are areas that I need to um, just keep in mind because if I'm waffling on it, I need to have more clarity about what these issues are or what these criteria points are than, than what I do. And I'm just going to roll with what I actually, 
what I've originally thought usually. I mean, unless, unless it's something that was a clear miss in the idea that I overlooked something, then and I go, oh, I didn't define this right. And I can see that already very clearly. And I can look back at past examples. That might be an example of it. For me, with a guy like Trey Sermon, I think, you know, for me, pre-draft, it was more on point because I had the I had the knowledge of thinking, well, San Francisco isn't going to really run schemes that fit Trey Sermon all that well. And and really Kyle Shanahan loves speed. He loves Tevin Coleman backs. He doesn't love Devonta Freeman backs. But then when I saw them take Trey Lance and I thought, well, they'll run. Then I start creating situations that didn't actually happen. And now they were based on an assumption of rationality, but that assumption is can be dangerous. So that assumption would be because now we're in the post-draft phase and the post-draft phase, I'm, I'm thinking I'm doing more projecting of what I think the NFL is going to do. And I'm thinking, well, they'll run more inside zone to Trey Sermon because they're obviously, they got a quarterback who they're going to use to run to the outside a little bit more. They're going to have a, you know, they're going to use, they trade it up to get Sermon. They must know what they like of him and what they're going to use him for. Um, and actually it turned out that what they were most likely thinking was they like to run, they like to run, um, Lance inside and that's generally what he did at North Dakota State they like to run their running backs outside um, which is not what Sermon's greatest strength is and they thought Sermon could just turn off his brain and unlearn the things that he spent years learning which was you know setting up cutbacks and learning how to how to set up defenses in a way that the backs that they tend to pick are guys who is just like the hole's going to be here whether it's really here or not just hit that thing hard don't think about it you don't have to do much with cutbacks we just value your speed and your physicality and they thought with sermon as a tackle breaker that they could just get him to turn off that part of his diagnostic skill because they've made it easy for him but that's not how he runs and he made it more complicated than what he needed to for that offense and as a result he was he played slower he was a slower decision maker his decision making didn't fit with his decision making didn't fit with that scheme so i guess from the standpoint of of these things is that the harder part for me is projecting post draft i find that if i i i i say i tell my customers this all the time adam they always say, can I just buy the post draft? And I'm like, no, you can, I do both as a package because in time you're going to appreciate the pre-draft more than the post draft. You, I'm selling you the post draft because most people want the post draft, um, you know, because they feel like they want the illusion of these updates and every little bit of news to analyze and chew on because they think that's going to help them win when actually I think it's more entertainment for them, even Whereas I find that my pre-drafts tend to be more evergreen. And I say, you're going to appreciate this three years from now when you look up the waiver wire at somebody no one's been talking about and you can pick this player and what it's been, what's said about that guy was rooted in better quality of research 
than like a snap, a snap assessment, you know, basically five days after the NFL draft, trying to like figure out things that is an early look. And I think that for me, I guess that's a long way of saying that how I like to make decisions is if I have a very strong set of criteria where I spend a lot of time and energy and a lot of steps to go through, I tend to trust that. Um, but where I tend to err is when something big happens, everyone's saying X and then, you know, and I'm looking at a realm where I don't have as much criteria to sort through and, and I have less time. That's where it gets dicey for me. You know, what? A- yeah. So it, it strikes me as you're talking about this, that like, I, I ju- I've kind of just realized something about us, but like a lot of what you're talking about with the pre-draft versus the post-draft, it's an issue of like knowledge versus meta-knowledge. So like knowledge is things that you know, and meta-knowledge is the things that you know about the things that you know. Um, and so for instance, you can have knowledge. Trey Sermon can do this. Trey Sermon cannot do this, right? Right. And you, you like that. You're, and that's really like the strength of your process and the strength of what you're doing. But then there's the meta knowledge. You can't know whether teams will use him to that in that manner. They won't whatever. And so you hate that part of it. Um, whereas I think me personally, I, I, I tend to be a lot less certain on the knowledge aspect, but I, I love the meta knowledge aspect and, and the figuring out that sort of thing. And so I think for you, it's probably easier. You have your process, you go through and you, you're an outlier and you're like, okay, I accept it. I'm just an outlier. Yeah. Cause again, you're, you're really solid on the knowledge and then, you know, a little squishy on the meta knowledge. Um, whereas for me, like one of my big heuristics is um, if I find something that is like way outside conventional wisdom, right? Even if I'm completely a hundred percent rock solid on everything, right? The process is sound. I've checked it. I, I, trust that like this is a fair and accurate result given the data you know i know that i'm likely going to be wrong right and most of the time like on every belief it's likely you're going to be wrong but the error is symmetric you could be wrong in one direction you could be wrong in another direction and that's why you kind of stick with your belief where it is because you're wrong but you don't know which way you're wrong in yet right um but if you're way outside consensus that that the error is not symmetric anymore. Like it's more likely that if I run the exact same study two years from now, I'm going to find a result, even if it was a good study, even if I did everything perfectly, two years from now, I'm probably gonna find a result that's between what I originally found and the original conventional wisdom. Like I know all of my errors are going to move me back to the pack. Um, And so I let that like meta knowledge really influence me a lot where like my process says one thing and then I'm mentally already doing like quote unquote, the post draft update, and I'm already kind of moving back. And then it becomes a game where like, uh, you know, it becomes recursive, like, okay, I need to adjust for this, knowing that I under adjust, even accounting for the fact that I've adjusted for this. And, and that to me, that's the most fun part to me. Yeah. Um, but that, I, I think it's really just a stylistic thing between us. Yeah, it's kind of funny, because like, for me, I mean, at the end of the day, the way I would state it too, is that um, if you it's about having a compass and, and for, with this for, for me. And it's like, if I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to build a good compass or understand how to use the compass. If I follow what the convention says, 
because the because I don't really know always what the inner workings or decision making process that's going on behind that conventional thought. I you know I can give you a maybe there's a a heuristic or a general idea of what they're thinking, but I but I can't you know when you get two people in a room and you say what's accuracy for a quarterback, you know if we look at this what's an accurate pass and you get you know, three or four different, you know, answers and, and a couple of them are wildly different. You, you know, that's the kind of thing that I don't know. I mean, I I value Lance Zerline's opinion. I value Chad Ryder's opinion or Dane Brugler's opinion if we were to watch film and talk about it or Greg Cosell and we've done some of that. But I don't know how they define things. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna listen to them on that level, I'll listen to them to the point where I go, wow, that's wildly different than what I see here. Let me go back and look at my process just to make sure. But I know that I can't be in a room with them and spend 30 minutes going, let's look at these 20 passes and see what we think of that. Uh, so at, at the end of the day, I'm like, well, if I'm wrong, then I'm going to, I can go back and look and refine my own thing, but I'd rather get lost because I'm the one that got lost rather than because I heard someone, you know, you know, 50 yards down going, I think the trail's this way, you know, and, and think, well, let me follow them because I don't know where I am and then wind up in a worse situation than, and not know why. And I think that's for me, that's where that goes. It's the, it's the love hate of doing this because I can't tell you how many times, like every year, there's always at least three or four players where I go, this is going to suck. You know, like, I mean, I, I remember Darren McFadden a lot because I just kept thinking, I don't like his game. Like, and, and everyone loved him. And, and, but I knew, you know, you had those types of things. Or there's guys that, you know, like Sermon, I really, I really like his game. Still believe in what he can do in the right situation, but you look at it and go, "Well, that's not going to work." You, you know, you, you're watching the 49ers and you're thinking, "Yeah," you get that slow sinking feeling. You know, as you're as as you're watching the season unfold and seeing what it is that they do value, and you're and and, and you know, and and you think, "Okay, well." What do I have to address about my process? Or do I have to address anything with, you know, for me, the valuation part, nothing I had to address about his pre-draft evaluation to this point that I would say that. But post-draft, then I have, you know, that's where you have to go, okay, well, how do I refine this? You know, do I, and and probably for me at this point, I would probably have said, he's he's a bad fit. And even though they dra they drafted him, they they traded up to get him he's still a bad fit and that's a concern but what i would have had to know and is coaching gm relationships kyle shanahan and then there's things that just get dangerous to project like you go how do i project that i think that kyle shanahan is somewhat of a dysfunctional human being who like his father would kind of play games to get what he wanted um, and I've heard this from people who worked in organizations with them. So it's like, how do I state that? And how do I, but do I actually believe that? 
do I, can I really attribute that? Can I really say, I'm doing this heavily criteria-based knowledge, but I'm going to change how I feel in the post-draft to a player, or I'm going to reassert it to the sense of saying, well, there's nothing really scientific about this, but Kyle Shanahan's a diva, and he doesn't, you know, and if he doesn't give what he wants, he's going to smile at the GM and then just do something to basically run that player into the ground and then tell the media about how the the GM was wrong, but like his daddy say, well, you know, Daniel Snyder, he put Robert Griffin up to uh, up to coming to me and saying that I wanted, you know, that he wanted to be a complete quarterback and that he wanted input into plays. And I mean, I'm telling you guys, I, you know, I'm a veteran coach and I understand, I understand Robert. He's just a young kid. He's a nice kid. But no rookie asks a coach to have input into the offense. And so I asked somebody about that when I heard that about Mike. And he laughed, you know, who's been in the league, laughed. He goes, about 70% of the quarterbacks, especially young ones, get input into their offense. You know, and then you combine that with the whole Cecil story about Jake Plummer having, you know, his some of his best plays taken out of the playbook the year that they, they got Cutler to undermine undermine him and stories of that kind of nature they're interesting they're fun to hear to an extent depending on what point of view you have if you're a broncos fan probably not but you know but i look at that and i think that's the tough part like how much do i want to give credence to that especially with a you know an analysis that to me i look at as like it has some value but it almost I'm still pointing people to the original analysis. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, well, that's a classic, yeah, classic meta knowledge example. I mean, I, I eat that stuff up. That's that's more my game than your game. Um, I also, I think it's funny too. There's this perception. I'm sure you've run into it a lot. That, and and probably for good reason. This idea that like anybody who's outside consensus, it's clickbait. Like they're doing it for attention. Yes. And there's definitely people out there who do it, but like. You and me, you know, we don't really like the conflict. Like, I, it's the opposite. I would rather be in consensus. I mean, my, my thing is, like, you can tell even so far in this episode, I've not really given any concrete examples of things. You're giving, like, Trey Sermon and Russell Wilson, and I'm not really giving any concrete examples of anything I've done because, you know, I find, like, if you don't say anything specific, you can't possibly be wrong. <laughs> you know, like, you don't put yourself out there. And then, you know, it's it's pretty easy to fool people where, like, it, they're like, oh, I can't recall any instances of him being wrong. He must be pretty good. And they never stop and think, well, I can't really recall any instances of him being right. <laughs> and that's the and that's the thing. I mean, it's 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 how it is. I mean, but you live with the you live with the right and wrong. I mean, you know, I I've had a lot of good examples that have come up. Well, I mean, we can, you know, but so, you know, for every Mahomes or Lamar Jackson or Chubb or Forte or guys that I didn't like, you know, like McFadden or Matt Leinard as much as other people, or, you know, maybe we'll see if Zach Wilson fits into that. There's a lot of guys. I just don't remember all of them, but, you know, I get people bring up. You'll always have someone who remember, you always have people who remember the ones that you miss, you know, whether it's Trey Sermon or Hakeem Butler, you know, um, you know, though Blaine Gabbert back in the day, you know, players like that, that you just, you know, that you, that you're going to learn from, but 
Every year. I mean, Skylar Thompson will be that player. Skylar Thompson, by far my number one quarterback in this class. And my first thought, literally, because the way you described it is perfect. My first thought when I when I watched about six games and he scored higher than everybody else was, oh, fuck me. This is, ex-. you know, that here was... Here we go again. Here we go again. That's exactly what it was. But And then it was like, let's watch some more. And then... And it just, I, you know, my process, you know, it's probably some confirmation bias with whatever my process is, or it's just that my process is, is going to be right about him to some extent. And I mean, the early returns are, are promising to the extent that he had a terrific preseason, but that's, doesn't mean that that translates to the post, to the regular season. Cause there's lots of quarterbacks who, who never had starter careers who led in the preseason. I remember Brett Hundley being one of them, um, you know, who was a guy that I liked. So, well, and, and like Aaron Rodgers was just famously awful his first three preseasons. I mean, the Packers were, were like kind of, I don't know about if the Packers were, but like outside observers, when he was taking over for Favre, everybody was just convinced it was going to be a disaster because he had been so bad in, in all the action that we saw him in. And then basically from year one, he was, he was a star. Yeah. So it's just, it, it is what it is. The clickbait stuff. I mean, I, 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 now the joke is, is, I mean, I remember when I did the Nick Chubb one and I had somebody who, and I, and I'm not going to mention him by name cause, uh, but he was, he was at first, he was not very classy. And then he was extremely classy afterwards because he came after me about Nick Chubb in the preseason and just said, I can't even, you know, I, how can you even, you know, like this guy? Um, and you like him as much or better than Saquon Barkley, I, I just can't have any respect for what you do. And, he, you know, he had a pretty high following. And I just said, well, if you want to watch some film with me, I can take you through why I believe what I believe. No, nah, thanks. I just can't even respect it. And by, by midseason of that rookie year, he was like, he came out and said, I owe you an apology. And, you know, I, you know, you know I appreciate how you handled it. But during that time, I had people who had been, you know, they come to know you for your your takes because he was like, this is probably clickbait and this kind of thing. And people were like, you you don't know. You don't realize. Right. You don't realize yeah. it's not clickbait. He's done this before. This is kind of this is kind of part of his process. And and I think I joked, I said, Well, what you're thinking is pretty much like this this is your first step to becoming a subscriber to my work. That's basically how I put it is because at some point he got rude. So I just decided I was just going to be a smart ass back and say, well, you're, you're, you're about half of my customer base before they become my customers. Um, and then they realize that it's not clickbait, you know? So it is what it is. The people who, I think what I value about, and I'm sure you do too, Adam, about having readers who, who follow your work is the ones who get it, admire that you do have an approach and they and they understand that you're going to be wrong but you're there's going to be something that they can that they can logically grasp in terms of where you're coming from what your perspective is and how you're thinking a, about it even if they agree or disagree um and it gives them something to consider and to like from an observer standpoint it's better to have a new entrant in the field who is more, his process is more independent 
from all the other processes, even if it's not as good. And I'm not saying yours isn't as good, but I'm just saying independence itself is valuable where like, okay, let's say somebody's got a process that's got like an 80% hit rate. You know, if they say a guy's going to be good, he's good. They say a guy's going to be bad, he's bad. Say somebody else enters in and they have a process that has a 60% hit rate. They say he's going to be good, 60% good. They say he's going to be bad, 60% chance he's bad, right? If you combine the two of them together and both of them say that a player is going to be good, if those two processes are completely independent, the odds of that guy being good are um, like 92%, Yeah. right? If both processes are basically the same, you know, if the latter process is just a warmed over version of the other process, or say somebody else comes in with a process that's nearly identical that also has an 80% hit rate, you combine those two together and the hit rate's still 80% because they're not independent at all. Um, so it's better to have multiple different approaches to a problem that are all kind of taking a bite at the apple from a different side um, because then those then those percentages multiply. Yeah. But if, if everybody's just doing the same thing, just with slight tweaks around the edges, they're just telling you the same thing over and over and again. And it's not it's not as useful. What do you think about the value of someone who has a lower hit rate overall, but where they hit the value of those hits are massively greater than the value of their misses. You, are you asking for Sigmund? <laughs> Did Sigmund put you up to that? No, actually, no. It just came to mind, like, I think about, like, if someone, you know, to me, I think about, you know, I, I just think about my own process and where I've had successes. I mean, I think about some of the players I've had successes with that are, you know, I may miss on, I'm, I may miss, you know, say if my quarterback rankings are a certain way and it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm missed like everybody else here and maybe I'm 10% lower or 15% lower than the crew overall in five years. But where I stood out was I had, you know, if I had, you know, if you have Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes and, you know, and um, I'm trying to think of who else I was going to Wilson. Russell Wilson in that, in that peer group, and that hit and their production far outweighs the ones that you hit on who are like one year contract guys or or have been or Alex Smith type of players you know does does that have where do you how do you look at that as a potential value or does it not have that much different of a value yeah i mean i bring up sigmund because um you know when he's had his rankings you know when he he goes back and he verifies them and he he checks performance um and he'll he'll talk about this it's a point of pride for him that he has very contrarian rankings i mean his stand out a lot and it's not that they're more accurate overall but it's one of those where like if you get in situations where everybody agrees he tends to be right on like the high leverage calls and um so like the, his overall hit rate is lower but his like the leverage of his hits is higher um and it's a completely it's you know it's a valid approach to it it's a it, lots of different ways to approach the problem and it's good to approach it from lots of different ways um you know i tend to prefer in a lot of cases batting for average but at the end of the day it's you know it's what percent you're right times the magnitude that you're right it's expected value it's just all basic expected value and you know it's if you're only right 10 percent of the time but that 10 percent of the time it's 20 times as valuable you know you're coming out ahead still um and that's that's completely valid that's not 
I feel like this is a place that people can retreat to where like, oh, I'm not wrong. I'm just contrarian. And yeah, it's important and to be rigorous about yeah. it. But that that is valid. You know, yeah. some people are hitting for averages. Other people are swinging for home runs. And it's it's a different style. And there's a time and place for both. Um, but you can you can absolutely be successful yeah. in, in any endeavor with either approach. Yeah, I don't try to hit for I don't try to swing for home runs, to be honest. I'm trying to hit for average, but I but maybe I have some natural power. I don't know. It's not, you know, but it's but I strike out a little bit more with certain players as a result of that, too. But it's but that's the you know, I mean, I I I, I agree with you the idea. The idea of just being contrarian to be contrarian is 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 not valuable, and I and I think the difficulty is for people to understand what the difference is for someone who just happens to have contrarian views and someone who's just doing it to get clicks. And I think right. that you know, at the end of the day, it is about can you are they showing you their process? Are they showing you? the logic that they're putting behind this and does the logic make sense at the end of the day and if it's not if it's just more rhetoric then you know that's a good tell yeah it's rough out there it's hard to know who to trust so um yeah just trust me and that's all you need <laughs> well let's move let's move on, <laughs> on that note so now that we've i think that's what we're i think that's what we're going to title this show is just trust me and that's all you need to know um but let's talk a little bit more about what's going on trend wise right now because you know we've ha I remember Nick Whalen put up football guys Nick Whalen put out a list of quarterbacks who are performing their QB rating is you know below expectation at this point and there was a list of about probably eight or nine starters that people didn't really expect to be underperforming at this stage and it's early still of course so you know this is this is that season where what's going wrong with these players, you know, type of thing. But what is kind of fun when you look at that, those QB ratings is that there's a lot of two high shells and, and nickel and dime looks. And, and what I'm seeing too, along with quarterback ratings, maybe going, being down a little bit right now, which could have to do with a lot of factors i think you know especially in the cases of the players i saw injuries to wide receivers and linemen i can look at that list and, and just kind of check off all those things but there's 18 of the 30 teams right now have an equal or greater rushing play percentage thus far than they did in 2021 now, I think from a quick eyeballing of it, 15 of the 18 are greater. So that means half the league is, you know, greater than where they were. That doesn't tell us a lot, you know, at this point. And it can change very quickly. But the perception seems to be, and from my perception, it seems to be that teams are running the ball a little more often. Maybe not dramatically, but a little more often. But what they are doing a lot more often is they're running a it seems like they're running a lot more man and gap blocking plays where they pull a guard or pull a tight end or follow a fullback and just do what Kyle Shanahan's been doing, which is like, don't think meat, just like hit that hole hard. And, and we're not going to spend as much time on the intricacies of, of, you know, reading and cutting back on zone. And we're not, and really more about the zone blocking because zone blocking was more about smaller, athletic guys 
where you can just kind of get to the next to the gap over whereas with gap plays it's more of a coordinated effort to overpower um the defense and that it used to be that people would say well you can't run gap in the nfl very often as often as you can in college because the defenses are bigger stronger they'll manhandle you and they and they are just they're even more athletic than they were in in college so they neutralize these plays when you just have one gap to go to but it seems like i'm watching teams that i haven't seen run a lot of gap over the until the past couple years they're running it a lot now so i guess i'm wondering is is it you know you hear the idea of this is where the nfl cyclical are we going to go back to a running league? I mean, I have my, I don't think we're ever going to go back to a running league like it's the 70s or the 80s or even the early 90s. But are we getting, uh, is it logical to think that we're getting at least a little bit of a, a dip downward in passing as a result of the defenses that we're seeing? And do you think they're just going to readjust to something else in terms of throwing the ball? Yeah, so it's really funny you brought this up. I thought you brought this up in response to an article, and I, it sounds like you haven't even read or seen. Um, no. Michael Lopez, the NFL's director of analytics, like the in-house director of analytics, um, he runs their analytics department, and he looked basically at this exact question yesterday and published something on it. Um, cool. And Michael is, you know, talking about who to trust. Michael Lopez, he's on Twitter at, at Stats by Lopez, in my opinion, is the best of us. He's really good at what he does he's a fantastic advocate for analytics he does really good and careful and measured work um and i can't recommend him enough but he took a look at this and he's like scoring is down by five points per game versus where it was through three weeks last year and so he looked at like all of the contributors to points you know expected points so there's pass plays run plays field goals penalties um and extra points and um penalties Field goals, extra points, they're all basically flat. Kickers are as good as they've always been. Penalties are as common as they've always been. Minor, minor, minor year-to-year fluctuations, but for the most part, they're completely flat. Uh, But rush efficiency is up. Depending on the model you use, it is either the highest or the second highest it's been since 2011. And pass efficiency is way, way, way down. Depending on the model you use, it's either the lowest or second lowest that it's been since 2011. And as a result, the gap in efficiency between running plays and passing plays is the smallest it's been since at least 2011. Knowing the history of these trends, you know, I don't have hard data, but just based on my gut, I would imagine it's probably the closest it's been since the early 2000s. Um, Wow. And is that a trend? Probably not. you know, three weeks is just such a tiny sample size. It's hard to draw too many meaningful c- conclusions. Although, I mean, three weeks times 16 games a week, 50 games almost. It's 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 not a trivial sample size. There's, there's definitely some meaningful data there. Um, he talks a lot about how it's defensive shifts that are largely driving this. Uh, he's He writes about, like, coverage frequencies. Um, man coverage is at an all-time low since they've got the tracking data. Uh, Cover one uh, man coverage has dropped to 19.8% from a four-year average of 26.5%. 
Schemes with multiple deep safeties have jumped, including cover two zone up, which is up to 13.8% from a four-year average of 11.2%. Um, and basically, yeah, it's a lot, a lot more zone coverage, a lot of two deep safety looks. Um, it's basically what the NFL was doing to Pat Mahomes last year. They're now doing to everyone this year, and it's taking a lot of the edge out of the passing game. But as a result, it's leaving them more vulnerable to power running schemes. And you see the offenses adapting to that. And this is always the thing that you have to keep sight of when you're looking at NFL data that like offensive performance does not exist in a vacuum. Defensive performance does not exist in a vacuum. Everything is a response to something else. And even with any trend like this, the long-term trend might look stable, but it's actually a series of, it's a trend that bumps into a counter trend, that it creates a correction, which bumps into a counter counter trend, which creates another correction. And, and over time, it might look like a smooth and placid arc, but it's like the duck on the pond where underneath those feet are just kicking and kicking and kicking. And, and um, I tend to agree with you. I think passing is still going to go up. There is a theoretical upper limit. Teams are never going to get to a point where they're passing 100% of the time. It's not going to be like the Texas Tech's Tech Red Raiders under Michael Leach. I don't think we've hit the upper limit yet. There's still some room to go up, but it's nice to see, you know, defenses aren't just taking it lying down and they're they're saying, you know, we're not going to just passively sit by and let you do this. We're going to make you work for it. And in the short term, yeah, we are seeing um, a rise in, in running efficiency. Um, passing is still a tiny bit more efficient than running, but running's offering advantages beyond just, um, you know, like per play, expected points per play. Um, so on the net, I would say through three weeks at least, running has probably been slightly more valuable to teams than passing. I think we're going to see some other counter strategies coming in and putting us back on that trend line eventually. Um, but it's fun to watch the little cat and mouse game and, and to remember that, you know, like the other guys get paid too, that it's not Nobody's going to sit there and let trends happen to them. They're going to do their best to thwart them. Sometimes they're going to succeed in the short term. Sometimes they're going to succeed in the long term. It, it's it's such a chaotic system, and we don't really know where it's going in the long run. Yeah, I think, and it's such a great macro explanation of what's going on, because then you can kind of counter it with the micro level and go, well, let's look at a guy like Kyler Murray, you know, and an example of that where he's just used to whipping that ball in situations where it's one-on-ones he's getting a lot more man coverage he can throw the ball deep he's going to be able to you know attack on that level and now it's about being more patient and dinking and dunking and, and more intermediate and short passing and there are a lot of quarterbacks who've entered the league who made their money by being in these spread offenses where you, you won man-to-man -man matchups um, and now you and you could th and you could attack aggressively. And if you didn't and if it didn't work out, you just ran out of the pocket, you know, and and try to work from there. But now they're in a situation where, you know, I think defenses are getting a little bit better at being able to cordon off that pocket to an extent where also they're getting to you if your first read isn't one that you can attack immediately or your second read and you've got to or you've got to make two reads that are across the field. QB school did a good job of talking about Lamar Jackson, about how there's a very simplistic read 
where at least it looks simple, but it's a profoundly difficult one to do, which is to is to look at your backside, read outside one hash, and then immediately make the turn when you see that that's not open and immediately throw to the opposite flat. And it's like a two read type of diagnosis that, you know, you may know you got to go there, but the ability to throw that ball accurately in the limited amount of time you have to make that turn is a profoundly difficult thing for any veteran quarterback to even do. And Lamar Jackson's doing that well. Um, and it's it's one of those situations where I think quarterbacks like Murray, they're not, or even, you know, Baker Mayfield would be a perfect example who who wasn't able to do it from the get-go in the NFL, really on the level that he had. But Murray's a good, a better one of a guy who's been really high, you know, a high producer. And he's struggling a bit more because of the fact that, yeah, you now he's diagnostically having to do things where he's always leaned on his athletic gifts. He's always leaned on what's worked. And when you're the kind we've talked, Russ, Will, Russ um, Landy and I talked about this last week, that quarterbacks probably have to be, a, you know, narcissistic to a certain degree and have to have, or at least an extreme level of confidence and belief in themselves to play the, at, at a certain level. And it can only you can only imagine that there's a, there's a bit of stubbornness to quarterbacks that when they're presented with these problems, they think that they can still throw their way out of it like they had before. That it's about their ability as opposed to making the, the, the concession. It's like, I'm playing, a perfect example is like, just how you do things is I'm playing a lot of backgammon in my spare time. And, you know, I'm playing like that Lord of the Board game that they have that they advertise a lot on, on, on your phone. And, you know, I found that I thought I was a pretty good backgammon player. And then as I started to get to progressively higher levels of play, that my desire to be aggressive in situations where I need to just check down and like and, and just take the loss to, to maintain, a, you know, to, to continue to win overall it, that I'm the quarterback who's throwing in the, the teeth of coverage or won't throw the ball out of bounds or won't check the ball down like that. Which is not the slightest bit surprising to anybody who knows your aesthetic preferences in football. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I mean, it's like that's that's what I bump up against. And I think these quarterbacks do the same thing is that they they tend to be that uh, they, they tend to be that type of player, those type of players. And that adjustment is going to take some time. And some of them are just going to fail, you know, as a result of this, um, because they haven't figured out how to manage the game. So I think we'll see a few quarterbacks who who may either get benched that we didn't that we thought wouldn't or not see their contract renewed that we thought were on their way to having that happen. Um, and then we'll see other guys adjust and then we'll see some problem. We'll probably see some scheme adjustments as well um, in terms of how they how they design plays where they, you know, for like Kyler Murray, I would think what they would do is if they can't get him to check down or throw the ball away, then they'll start making him play call more plays that are just more RPO centric or schemed where he has to execute a number of steps to hit one receiver and it's and they have to do more plays like that but there's only limited success that you can have 
with scheme plays until they get found out. So at the end of the day, that scheme trend revolution might be like, you know, what, what they did with Robert Griffin when he first got into the league and Carson Wentz in a year two. Um, it can have a season of success, but then teams' defenses find them out if they're just heavily schemed. At some point, they still have to branch out and be able to make that, sec- that second read or that third read and be able to stay in the pocket doing it um, or ultimately that they will fail. So, yeah, the trend stuff's fascinating from that perspective. And on, on the topic of trends, I have a bugaboo I kind of have to go into since you brought Please. it up. You were talking about like returning to the run heavyways of the 70s. And it's difficult because the 70s is really when football popularity really took off. You know, like the core base of people who drove the NFL to the heights that that it reached, like that's the nostalgic era for them. You know, everybody has this era in their life where they were a certain age in a certain place. And like everything from that era is just like coated with nostalgia and everybody you remember it way more fondly than it really was yep um, probably did. why we're seeing remakes of all these movies appealing to kind of my generation the older millennials younger generation x's right now because that's the nostalgic sweet spot right now the nfl's nostalgic sweet spot was the 70s but the 70s people think that it's been like this huge trend from very very run heavy to very, very pass heavy today. But the 70s were a massive, massive historical outlier. The 50s and 60s were much higher volume passing offenses and much more efficient passing offenses. Um, And then, you know, because various rules were getting exploited, the 70s basically ground football to a halt. There's a reason it's known as the dead ball era. And despite how fondly everybody remembers it, like it wasn't very good football, which is why... (laughs) They did all these role changes to open it up because like at the time people were like, this is miserable. We're going to lose all our viewers. If this keeps up, we need to do something. And it's so funny now that like now, because it's in that nostalgic sweet spot, everybody's like, oh yeah, I remember smash mouth football in the seventies and you know, like five, two games in the rain. And if people had to sit through that now, they, they would not be pretty happy. They'd be boring to watch the Rams (laughs) beat the Browns nine to nothing, you know? Yeah, exactly. But, and it's, it's, but it like it makes the trend look a lot more pronounced than it really is. Like if you yeah. look at it from the 50s to today, there's a slow and gradual trend towards increasing pass volume and increasing pass efficiency with one huge outlier decade in the 70s where like just everything ground to a halt and the run was legitimately substantially more efficient than the pass. If you look at it from the 70s to, d- to today, it looks like this huge spike in, pa- in volume and efficiency, but that's really not the frame. You know, the, the trend is much longer and much slower than that. And the 70s, as much as everybody loves them, um, it's not really good football and it's not coming back. That's a great point. And I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. And that's that's worth remembering. I think I've heard that before and I've conveniently forgotten it. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And we actually just need to have a department on, on the show of like Adam's bugaboos, you know, and we can go through that. But I have a few myself, like I always, but mine are always centered around players where it's like the narrative, there's a narrative that shifts like, oh, Levy and Bell got quicker in year two. You know, he's much faster and quicker than he was. When I always hear people say that, I'm like, no, he's just thinking faster yeah, and being able to fast. execute faster. No, he was unbelievably yeah. quick. But yeah. they were like, he got quicker because he lost weight. No, he lost weight and got in better shape, but he was always extraordinarily quick. It was, he was thinking 
clearer so he could make the plays faster. He didn't jump, for, you know, his three-cone drill didn't jump a half a second, you know. But that's the thing that always drives me nuts. It's like hearing stuff like that is like, he got quicker. It's like, yeah, maybe at the, the end product he did. But the process, it's really... It's really about the processing and not the, the physical skill. So It's funny. I think our, our picadillos are very emblematic of the whole like knowledge versus meta-knowledge divide that you're like worried <laughs> about Le'Veon Bell's foot speed and I'm worried about, you know, like league-wide trends since the 50s. <laughs> it's, a fun, it's a fun gathering as a result of that. So, you know, we definitely appreciate you guys hanging out with us. And, and getting a chance to to see how our odd brains work um, you know when it comes to football and you know you can you can check out the RSP cast at all all the outlets that you download podcasts from and of course you can follow Adam Harstead at Adam Harstead find his fantastic work at footballguys.com you can find me too at footballguys.com after you read his article you got some time check out a couple of mine and then you can find me at mattwaldmanrsp.com um, and my YouTube channel Matt Waldman's RSP Foam Room thanks again for listening you guys have a great week <laughs>